Welcome to Capital Close-Up. I'm Paul Hodes, your host. We're broadcast on WKXL AM and FM. We're podcast wherever you find your podcasts, streamed live at nhtalkradio.com. And our website is beyondpoliticspodcast.com. Please listen to our podcasts and subscribe. It really helps us out. I'm very pleased to welcome back to Capital Close-Up our favorite journalist, Kevin Landrigan, a longtime journalist in New Hampshire, now writing for unionleader.com. Uh, Kevin has covered New Hampshire politics for as long as I've been around. Uh, he covered me when I was coverable, and now I'm really happy to have him on our show. Kevin, welcome to Capital Close-Up. Thanks, Paul. Great to be with you. So uh, here we are um, in April. Uh, it's, um, it's, it's getting warmer, although today is a little gray and a little cloudy. And uh, we've had COVID-19 as a fact of our life for more than a year. Everything shut down in March of 2020. Uh, we have been through panic of all kinds. And uh, for a while, things seem to be getting a lot better. Um, we now have vaccines. I got mine at the New Hampshire Speedway, one and done on with J&J. &J, and there's about 21.6% of people in New Hampshire who have been fully vaccinated. In terms of the vaccination rates, New Hampshire is doing pretty darn well compared to the rates of other states. Yet we are seeing, as we're seeing around the country, a very disturbing trend in a yet another surge of COVID. Um, the, latest, the latest statistics uh, tell us that there were an average of 437 cases per day over the most recent seven day period, which is an 11% increase uh, compared to the previous week. And if you look at the graphs on the state's COVID-19 response page, you can see a, a decided up uptick, a big a surge starting on March 1. Um, most of uh, the uh, sad deaths in New Hampshire have been uh, with the population over the age of 70 um, in the sort of the 60s and the, and the 70s. But, but um, we around the country, we're seeing this disturbing trend of younger people um, uh, catching COVID. And uh, it's, it's, it's a problem. Kevin, what's uh, what are you hearing from the state officials? What's the governor make of this? Um, you know, it's I don't know whether it's uh, begun to affect him politically at all. People may simply have moved beyond politics with with COVID. Um, the state has maintained its 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 mask mandate. I believe there um, is a, a push to reopen businesses, schools, and restaurants. Um, uh, but at what point uh, does this become problematic for the governor who is, according to 
a lot of sources uh, considering and looking at running for the United States Senate against Maggie Hassan. Right. Um, well, certainly um, state officials are concerned about the rising number of cases. Uh, hospitalizations and deaths don't seem to have certainly haven't gone up in the same to the same degree as cases have. I think that's a reflection of the fact that now since roughly um, the middle of February, the, the population of people in New Hampshire under age 30 have been the highest number of folks who contracted COVID. And that percentage continues to go up of the total cases of COVID. Um, was around 15%, now it's over 20% of all cases. And as we know, uh, as you alluded to with regard to fatalities, these people who are younger and healthier uh, tend to have milder cases of the virus, um, but they're obviously still um, able to transmit the virus to other people who could get sicker. Um, this remains a pretty big concern for this administration. As we saw when the state opened up vaccine registration to everybody under 30, between the age of 16 and 30, a week ago, Friday, uh, the percentage of that group that applied to try and get a, an appointment was significantly lower than all other age groups. And this speaks to what I think the administration and this governor had been concerned about for a number of months now is that as the age of people who can become eligible for the vaccine are able to register, the concern always has been in, they will try to get the vaccine in lower numbers. And once that happens, you're gonna have a, a, a large group of their population continue to go unvaccinated. It's one of the reasons why the state is aggressively been marked, gonna be embarking this summer on a six figure paid cable TV and digital advertising campaign to try and get the stragglers to uh, get the vaccine. It's also one of the reasons why we're seeing in both businesses and higher education, companies struggle with how to require people to get vaccinated. It's one of, you know, um, a number of colleges now, particularly on the East Coast, have announced that by the fall, they're gonna require all students, if they return to campus, to be vaccinated. Right. And that's one of the ways to get, obviously to get that younger group. Has UNH, has UNH taken that? They, ha they have not as yet. Uh, um, and St. Anselm's has, Franklin Pierce University has. Um, but uh, the public higher ed has not yet, um, but I certainly wouldn't be surprised if they did, particularly if they, um, that was something else that sort of jumped out at us uh, about three weeks ago was that um, in New Hampshire, uh, Durham, Excuse me, Durham, Durham became the third highest group to have new cases about a month ago behind Manchester and Nashville. And if you looked at cases per 100,000, which is really the best way to look at how bad COVID is in your community, 
because small towns are going to have small numbers of cases, right? Um, right. Durham, Durham had the highest percentage per 100,000 in the entire state, followed by Hanover, you know, which, yeah. um, and a lot of, which is particularly alarming because a lot of Dartmouth College is not, is in remote. A lot of, there aren't, there are, um, there are work studies and a lot of internship programs and many independent studies that are occurring on campus, but a lot of classes aren't. They, they still are. Um, they have enough college students up there staying year round that they've, um, their, their case numbers have spiked too. So that's, um, that's certainly a real worry. Uh, it may be that, that the, you know, a younger population, college kids who are, as I recall, notoriously rebellious and sure. stretching their wings and wanting to be independent or may be uh, fe still feeling, you know, immune and immortal um, to the effects of COVID and figuring, oh, okay, if I get it, uh, it, it won't be as bad. Uh, so why bother going to get jabbed in the arm? Because um, it's not gonna, <clears throat> it's not gonna get me. Um, and they are missing the, the community transmission that can happen really quickly. I mean, this, this, this disease spreads like wire, wildfire, and we're now dealing with uh, variants. Um, in New Hampshire, it looks like the UK, so the so-called UK variant is predominantly the variant that we're going to have to deal with. There is, I believe, not more than one or two cases of the South African variant, but uh, and and the and the vaccinations have been shown to be pretty effective even against the variants. But um, the the rise of variant strains combined with uh, the effect on younger populations who are who are less likely to get the vaccine are really concerning because after all, I mean, it's April, May, uh, if, uh, if people are, you know, if the colleges close down somewhat for the summer, there are some colleges that, that, that do stay open. Sure. Uh, by the time we come, we come to the fall, who knows what kind of shape we're gonna be in um, and it, I, I would expect UNH to require vaccinations just like other colleges uh, on the East Coast have. Sure. Yeah, I think that's true. I think, um, uh, and, um, and as we saw last week, um, this governor sort of did an about face on uh, vaccinating out of state college students. Um, really okay. not, <laughs> that didn't really, take too long. No, really not the first time he's done that, which is to say, and, and some of this I think speaks to the popularity you were referring to. He remains adaptive, not rigid, depending on what circumstances are. As I say, early on in the pandemic, folks will recall, he really pushed back against the teachers union, did not want to um, make teachers a specially protected class when it came to getting the vaccine early. Um, changed his mind about that as um, many states moved up scheduling of vaccines for teachers and also um, the vaccine numbers that we were getting increased. He created a special registration for them. That's gone well. It's gotten pretty good 
response from teachers over 60%, not, not quite 65% to this point have gotten at least their first dose and many have gotten their second. Um, and we saw that again last week with out-of-state college students. And I think a reflection of the changing circumstances, which is like I was alluding to earlier, because we're getting more vaccine every week and because the younger populations aren't signing up in the same rate of numbers, the state is looking at having a lot of available vaccine appointments between now and Memorial Day and not in any way gonna be able to fill them with its residents. So that's why he decided to kind of make New Hampshire a, a, um, uh, a vaccine island, if you will, and permit um, anyone from outside the state uh, to come in and get vaccinated here. You know, it's it, just <clears throat> turning to the political ramifications for a moment. What's what's interesting is that I think that whatever uh, people think about the governor and his policies and the Democrat, the Democrats have been sending out, you know, weekly, weekly or daily um, uh, uh uh, letters and emails uh, trying to trying to pin something on the governor. I mean, basically, you know, talking about trying to, you know, what what happens in politics. <laughs> the Democrats would like to be have the corner office back and they keep trying to find something to tag the governor with. Um, but despite all of that, and despite the rising numbers uh, of covid, the governor, I think, remains very, very popular politically across the board. And I think one of the reasons is exemplified by what he did on the college age um, or a college student vaccination issue by, by not rigidly sticking to his guns, so to speak, and reversing his position with, without a lot of fanfare, without a lot of announcement, without making a big deal out of it. Um, you know, I didn't see a lot of news about it, except, you know, just that uh, it, it, it just appeared one day that, that he had reversed his position on this and the state would now allow college students from wherever to be vaccinated. Um, it, it displayed a flexibility that I think the voters appreciate about the governor, whether they agree with him or not, they appreciate that he is somebody who in certain instances can be flexible instead of rigid, which in politics these days can be a rarity. Sure, and it, it certainly is. Um, he, he thinks it's certainly in striking contrast to what's going on in Washington, a lot of partisanship, a lot of ideological rigidity and, and in, inability to, um, to work with people and find compromise in response to the, his initial decision about out-of-state students. Um, uh, there was a pretty am ambitious patrician drive started, and, you know, more than 5,000 people signed it. I think uh, the governor certainly took note of that. And, um, and I think picked up, you know, with regard to Washington in making a decision to allow out-of-state people to get vaccinated, not just college students, by the way, anybody from any state can come here uh, 
and get vaccinated. And as we know, there are a lot of people who don't permanently reside here, but spend a lot of time here. And, and those folks now can get vaccinated. And he chose the date of April 19th, which also not coincidentally happened to be the date uh, President Biden chose to, to say all adults by then should be able to schedule to get a vaccine. And I think that's, he picked it. I think the governor picked that date because it was one the president's administration targeted. And he also picked it because he thinks um, if I if I make change my mind and do it soon enough, it's likely that these out-of-state college students could be able to get their second shot before they go home for the summer. So um, um, that's why he did it that way and, and why um, we are where we are. Yep. So let me turn to uh, the state budget, and then we can talk about uh, perhaps in the next segment, we'll get to some of the other bills that, that have been passing the great house in New Hampshire, the, the people's house for hundreds strong. So the, the, the wrangle over the state budget is um, perennial. It, it happens every time a, a, the governor proposes a budget, the House takes it and they deal with the budget and then it goes over to the Senate and they deal with the budget and then it'll go back to the House and ultimately the, the governor will have to decide whether to, to sign it or let it go and what will happen and and it's not unusual but this year of course uh, the republicans have taken over uh the republican freedom caucus and far right conservatives seem to be in firm control the governor had a number of priorities of his in his budget and uh, if, uh, if, if the flowers are blooming, then the House budget writers are, are hard at work messing with what the governor wants to do. And it, it looks like uh, the governor um, lost a lot of important initiatives uh, in the House budget plan, including a college loan forgiveness program for graduates in high demand fields like healthcare, a school infrastructure program for broadband and safety measures, especially in light of COVID-19, and a new 30-bed secure psychiatric hospital uh, on the New Hampshire hospital grounds. And given the bent of this uh, Republican-led legislature, also gone is Planned Parenthood, um, the perennial Republican amendment requiring uh, separation of health care services from abortion services, both physically and financially, in order to try to kill a Planned Parenthood and uh, um, an anti-abortion uh, measure. How's the governor taking all this? And um, what, how's, how's he taking it? What does he yeah, think? Yeah. Um... Well, certainly not happy with what they've done. I think um, he essentially described the house process as sort of going off the rails. Um, he doesn't think it's well well financed, has indicated he's gonna go to the Senate and try and fix all this. And, and I think he'll be successful in fixing some of it, probably not all of it, but um, his, um, 
what happened in the house was kind of predictable. Um, if you understand that, well, Republicans have the majority there. It's the smallest majority of 40 years of, in the house. And um, with roughly 212 Republicans among the 398 that are now serving there. So um, not a lot of room for error. And also this governor, when he won two to one last November to get a third term, uh, ended up getting a majority and on the Republican side that is certainly decidedly more conservative than it even was four years ago when he first won and, and Republicans took back the House. Um, so, uh, so because it's very conservative, has a new speaker, uh, Sherman Packard, um, who's a social conservative, fiscal conservative, but not real ideologue. Took over for, for took over for a kind of a similar Republican Dick Hinch, who sadly passed away with COVID last December. So, you got a new leadership there um, that has a decent relationship with Sununu, but has to get the votes. And they, as they talked with their caucus, they began to understand that this governor's budget wasn't going to be acceptable to this Republican majority, because in their mind, it spent too much money and had too many new initiatives that, um, that they didn't like. And it didn't have a lot of kind of social engineering that they were looking for, whether it's uh, kind of the assault on Planned Parenthood, uh, the the so-called uh, ban on teaching divisive concepts like critical race theory in public schools that conservatives wanted, they got that in there as well. The another feature that really doesn't make this governor happy is a lot of the changes they made in the trailer bill to the budget that deal with future public health emergencies that essentially put the legislature very much as a um, as a co-equal branch when it comes to executive power right. in, dealing, in dealing with emergencies. So that, for, for example, one provision would be that if the governor declared a future emergency, it would end after 30 days unless the legislature allowed it to continue. One of the real uh, issues that caused a huge hue and cry uh, among Democrats and uh, has gained a lot of attention is the contents of House Bill 544, uh, which, if I understand it, passed um, uh, as part of the budget. And that would prohibit, quote, the dissemination of certain divisive concepts related to sex and race in state contracts, grants, and training programs. Uh, there's grave concern that this issue would apply to schools and universities. Apparently, it's based on a memo issued by former President Donald Trump in September before the election, seeking to ban, quote, critical race theory, unquote, and discussions of white privilege. And this bill, this amendment, um, which was added to the budget, was defended by none other than former state Supreme Court Justice uh, Bob Lynn, 
uh, somebody I know well, somebody I've had a great deal of respect for, who issued a statement that that talked about, well, you know, that there's free speech and uh, basically saying you ought to be able to teach white supremacy. Um, uh, it, and I'm, I, I'm certainly not quoting him, but this provision, um, I, I don't know how it stands up. Uh, for one thing, it, it, it's really extreme. If it applies to universities, what does it mean for the teaching of history? What does it mean for dealing with critical thinking? What does it mean for, for, for teaching people about both sides of an argument? What does it mean for taking a real look at current events um, and how would it operate and how could it be constitutional? Right, uh, and certainly this governor is no fan of it. He's made it clear that he would veto it if um, uh, if it became law or was sent to him. It was interesting at the end of um, this particular idea is both in the budget and was also in a separate bill. And what legislative leaders in the House decided was we're not going to give this governor, we're not going to make it easy for him. Um, so we're not going to give him this bill in a separate bill. They put that one on the table last Thursday and basically let this thing become part of the whole global bargain over the budget. And I suspect uh, the Senate won't support this idea and we'll, um, we'll, go to, um, we'll go to a conference committee on the budget and figure out what happens. The... Um, the governor's view on this essentially is that even if he did, doesn't like the concept of critical race theory, uh, he thinks adopting something like this would be a very slippery slope in that um, uh, if you, once you decide you're not gonna allow discussions of topics on what some might consider the ultra left, then we'll, uh, Democrats when they're in charge will ban topics to be taught on, on alt-right. And, um, and we're at this kind of race to the bottom, which probably may not survive a constitutional test. That's what's sort of interesting. The case of this whole discussion is appears headed to the US Supreme Court. There's been a challenge in the state of California against a similar law that um, was approved in part of Orange County. and. Um, and the district court has ruled it unconstitutional. The appeals court has done the same, and it's likely that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to decide this case in the next year and determine whether these kind of uh, bans um, violate the First Amendment. You know, what's interesting is that um, these kinds of, of bills or amendments or moves do not come in a vacuum into New Hampshire. Uh, these are part of a national strategy by conservative Republican groups who uh, largely provide these kinds of social engineering bills to the state legislators looking for receptive ears uh, among uh, controlling legislatures and then push the social agenda, whether it's about uh, abortion or 
in this case, race relations um, or other controversial subjects, these um, the, the the legislators are 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 receiving uh, legislation that basically is written for them by outside uh, sources, and then they push it in their various states. And uh, it's good to know that. Uh, that at least the federal courts out in California that are dealing with it have have taken have have taken a good a good look at this. One of the other interesting things about this House budget are the tax cuts. Um, here we are recovering from COVID. Yes, revenues appear to be coming in better than they folks thought it they would. They're better than they were in 2020, but. It looks like the, the House budget cuts state business taxes, it cuts rooms and meals taxes, it begins a phase out of the interest uh, and um, a dividends tax. Uh, it looks like there are big cuts to the Department of Health and Human Services budget uh, by more than $72 million in back of the budget across the board reductions in personnel um, uh, with reductions um, in in in. 2021, 2022, 2023. I mean, how, where, how, how does, how does the House leadership justify cutting uh, health and human services at a time when we're in the midst of a COVID pandemic? And um, what happens to state services in in a budget like this? Yeah, I think some of them. Um... As I was saying before, um, a lot of these changes were made to um, to get this over the House finish line, not necessarily to finish a budget, right? The House even, just to give you an indication of how kind of ideologically rigid uh, the House budgeting process became, was uh, the House Ways and Means Committee about two weeks ago decided to raise the revenue estimates because the economy is recovering and it looked like there was gonna be more revenue. And you may recall in March, in the beginning of March, the end of the first week in March, about three weeks after the governor had proposed a budget, his budget, he then told house budget writers, I'd like you to add $70 million in spending to this budget because revenues are up and we can do this. Um, and so he asked for restoring some cuts, spending cuts that he had had in his budget. And the House Finance Committee basically decided we're going to ignore both developments. So um, they adopted a budget based on earlier revenues without those additional monies. And they didn't do, they didn't add nearly any of what Sununu had asked them to. So um, again, because they feared if they did and put too much spending in, um, uh, 12, 15 Republicans would vote off the budget and you'd have a, a real mess on your hands. So um, that's sort of where they are. Um, uh, back of the budget cuts are not unusual. They've been done with both Republicans and Democrats, but um, um, this one's bigger than most. Um, and, um, and as I say, I don't think we'll likely survive to the magnitude it, it is. When it reaches the Senate, and 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 just to be to be fair or at least balanced, I I, I want to I want to at least be balanced, even if not fair. Um, the House budget writers did 
uh, add some money in certain places. They, okay. they taketh and they giveth. Uh, they added about $30 million more for county nursing homes, um, $11 million for uh, the higher education systems to level fund them for the next two years um, in the midst of discussions about merging um, the, the university system and the community college system. Um, and uh, apparently $100 million to offset statewide education property tax money for the second year of the, of, of the biennium. So they moved some money around and, yep. and, and added, added some, some money in, in priorities that, uh, that, that people would say are, uh, are, are good uh, priorities. Um, that some of the other uh, interesting bills that have recently come up uh, include a House bill requiring civic testing for college students. It, it was a bill that would require students uh, in, in both university and community college systems to pass a civics naturalization test as part of their diploma requirements. And it passed the House by one vote. Um, the House had previously passed a similar measure, required high school students to pass the assessment. Um, uh, and that if they, if it became, if it becomes law, students who pass the test wouldn't have to take it again in college. Um, and, and now the Senate is looking at these civics assessment tests. It's kind of interesting to, to, uh, to legislate uh, civics, um, especially in an era of tribalism and lots of political disagreement where we're a divided population politically, everybody is fond of saying. And it is New Hampshire's own David Souter, former attorney general, uh, under whom I briefly worked when he was attorney general and former Supreme Court justice on the United States Supreme Court, who has made it part of his uh, life's mission to try to make sure that civics uh, are brought back to our school uh, curriculum. And uh, it's interesting that the House passed the measure on a bipartisan vote with a single vote uh, majority. And I'm, I'm curious whether what you heard about this, whether it was controversial, why the vote was so close, uh, is it the idea of simply requiring civics that the objections uh, were made? Uh, or is there some other political agenda at work? Sometimes you, it's interesting. And the House is a, um, predicting what happens and what's going to happen with legislation often in the House is like trying to read a Ouija board. You know, it's a very... Um, um, the membership is so large and the dynamics of a session like we had last week, meeting th over three days, almost 350 bills. Um, it's both hard to keep everybody's attention and both very difficult for the majority to um, to prevail on every argument. And and so they, the House Republicans, as I say, with their small majority, did lose some. Some of the opposition essentially to this was uh, that... It wouldn't, while well, it may be a laudable idea, it's not really going to accomplish much. One 
um, this test, which the federal government administers to new immigrants. It's a, the, um, the test has like 130 questions on it. And most new immigrants are asked only about 10 of the questions um, just to get kind of a, see if people have been prospective immigrants who are at least looking at the system we have and have some knowledge about it. This would, this bill would have required students to take the entire test of all these questions. And um, and if the answers are online, what are, you what are they really learning? They're just kind of regurgitating the answers they can receive um, if they're ambitious enough um, uh, to do a few searches. So that was certainly one concern people had about it. Um, international foreign students would be exempt from this. I don't, the Dean of the Senate, uh, Lou D'Alessandro, Manchester Democrat, former civics teacher in high school, big proponent of teaching civics um, in the past has supported legislation to require the teaching of civics in high school. So he, he might be someone who likes this idea, but um, I'm not sure it gets a lot of traction in the Senate. We'll see. We'll see. But. You know what? It's what's fascinating, Kevin, is that um, uh, whenever the presidential election comes around, um, students are interviewed, sometimes on comedy shows. You know, I I no. I, I recall seeing interviews um, around the election with college students who. And, and maybe they were chosen for comic, comic effect, because I think it was like, you know, full frontal with Samantha Bee or um, uh, somebody like that. But the college students who were, were interviewed on television were remarkably ignorant of both civics and right. Amer American history. Yep. I mean, they didn't know about the Civil War. They didn't know about the Holocaust. They didn't know how the government was organized. And uh, if we're gonna have a democracy, it seems to me that an educated citizenry uh, about that democracy and just in terms of the basics of how it works. I mean, you and I, the, in the conversation today, we've gone into some pretty wonky territory in terms of state budgets, but state budgets really are policy documents. Uh, they reflect the political priorities of, of the politicians who write the budgets and the, the battles over the budgets are really, are often political ballots, battles, even when it comes to uh, issues of spending; those spending priorities are are all are always political in a state budget. And while that gets pretty deep into it for for students today, not to come out of uh, high school or college with at least a working knowledge of how America works and its political system works, I think is shameful. And I think it has contributed to uh, the polarization in the country. I think that if students uh, had a better grasp of civics, a better grasp of history, uh, we would, with a more educated citizenry, uh, be less tribal uh, and be able to uh, be a little more uh, democratic. Well, we have a few minutes left, and I, I just wanted to ask you, there's, you know, uh, the, the Controversy surrounding the New Hampshire uh, primary has risen its ugly 
uh, head again. Um, uh, we have seen uh, statements from uh, Secretary of State Bill Gardner trying to equate federal legislation about voting reform to somehow tie to uh, an attempt to take away the primary. But meanwhile, uh, the New Hampshire legislature moved uh, uh, the, the House try is what wants to move the state primary from early September to late June. Uh, an interesting move, but probably unconstitutional. Um, in 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 a in the few minutes we have left, uh, what can you tell us about where the New Hampshire primary is headed and what this state legislation uh, is that just going to go down in constitutional flames? Yeah, it it could. Um, um, certainly, there's been there have been discussions in the past about moving the primary up the. Um, there are only two states in the country that have a later primary than we do, um, Delaware and Louisiana. Um, most states have their primaries uh, before the 4th of July. And that's one of the reasons why some proponents have wanted to do this for some time. Um, but we've had our September primary since 1910. And um, the Secretary of State is um, a pretty big fan of it. Uh, occurring at the end of the summer after Labor Day, um, and the governor is supportive of it, so um, of the status quo. So um, I don't think uh, there have been senators in both parties in the past who've liked this idea, uh, but I think given the fight we have over our presidential primary, that probably um, doesn't argue well for this legislation in this year. The, the fight over the presidential primary is kind of interesting in that, I mean, having covered a few primaries over the years myself, and I covered a lot of fights over the attempts to take New Hampshire's influence away, this usually happens when in either party, Republican or Democrat, when the party that wants to make the initiative to weaken New Hampshire loses the last election. You know, it's unusual to have this kind of challenge occur when, after all, Democrats got what they wanted at the national level, right? And, um, and um, P.S., this president, Biden, has never done well in the New Hampshire primary, but won New Hampshire, almost by the exact same percentage as he won the popular vote. Devin, we're going to have to leave it there. All right. This is Capital Close-Up. Paul Hode speaking with Kevin Landrigan. We'll be back next week for more Capital Close-Up.